Hi, I'm Dr. Daniel Golshevsky, paediatrician and father of three. Welcome to my podcast, Dr. Golly and the Experts. Each episode, I'm joined by a parent who has faced an enormous challenge in raising their child and come out the other side as the expert. Raising children with special needs is challenging, especially if you're doing it alone. Both children and parents need support, and that can be the hardest thing to find when you're a carer raising your child. My guest today is not only a parent who has children with special needs, she founded an organisation to help others going through similar challenges. Catherine Piraboom is a world-leading disability and vulnerable persons advocate and the founder of Spectrum Support. She has three boys, Oliver, Joshua and Tyler, who are all on the autism spectrum diagnosed as level three, but are all unique in their own way. Kat, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today. (laughs) Let's just start. Tell me about your three beautiful boys. Oh my gosh. They are my everything. They are the reason that I get up in the morning, the reason that I do what I do for a living these days. And certainly when uh, when our little boys were born, we started to realise with Oliver in particular, as he was our eldest, that at around that 12-month mark, uh, nearly 18-month mark, that his journey was going to be significantly different to what we had been experiencing what were the first signs that you that started to raise the red flags? The first thing that really started was the eye contact had started to stop. He started looking elsewhere when we were talking to him. He started to stop pointing at objects. He started to have food aversions to foods that he had been eating really since he had started solids at that five, six month mark. There were some really significant things, but I think one of the the biggest moments for us was we were in the middle of a shopping centre and there was a newborn crying and the sound of the newborn crying really triggered Oliver and it made him hysterical. And we didn't know whether it was empathy for Mm. the child crying or what we now know was a sensory issue for him. But you recognised immediately that it wasn't normal. Correct. Now, speaking of newborns, Josh arrived shortly after. 11 months after Oliver was born, Joshy was born. So Irish twins, they call them. (laughs) (laughs) But that must have been, I mean, you had your hands full. I did. I did. So I ended up with three boys under two and a half years of age. So what did you do with a newborn and recognizing that there was something happening with your eldest son? How did you approach that diagnostic pathway? Mm. Look, it took time because I did have my hands full with Joshua and then I was pregnant. So it probably would have taken me a little bit longer than, than I would have liked to have noticed it. And Now, in hindsight, we know that early intervention is absolutely key. So the diagnostic path was starting with our GP. He then referred us to a a specialised paediatrician. We then spoke to him who said, look, yes, there are some, some concerns here. Let's take some blood tests. Let's look for fragile X. Let's look for a few other chromosomal issues. And then let's go down the path of having him diagnosed for autism. And that journey, we went through the public hospital system. It took 
way too long. I'm saying 18 months plus it took for us to have Oliver diagnosed from when we really started to identify that things weren't really moving the way that we wanted them to for him, for his developmental growth, to having him diagnosed. So we lost 18 months to two years in crucial development time. And it's of no fault. We didn't know what we were doing, but we didn't have the support of the medical system and the guidance that we do even now, Facebook groups and all of those things to help us identify faster so we can support our ASD kids. And this is the really tragic catch-22 whereby public wait lists are so long, yes, longer than ever. The pressure on the system is so great and there is a real sense of urgency here. As you mentioned, early intervention has been shown to be effective, but you can't intervene if you can't pay for it. If you can't pay for it, you need the government funding, which means you need the diagnosis. And if that process is two years, if not more, right now it's stretching out even further than that, you can lose that valuable window. Absolutely. And if you can't afford to pay for it privately and Private diagnosis, even now, is still in excess of $3,000. And that's just not achievable for Mm. some families. And especially if you have multiple children that you suspect may be on the spectrum or have additional needs and and different challenges, um, it's just not affordable for a lot of people. And then when the NDIS comes involved, as you just mentioned, you've already got to have a diagnosis prior to, to be able to, to access, to it. access yeah, the fund. Yeah. We're, we're some, lucky in Australia that we have the NDIS, I'm which so is extremely generous, for want of a better term, in terms of how much it gives for early intervention with yes. this condition. It's wonderful. But yes. as you said, accessing it is hard and it's it t- is. takes time. And there are, some, there are some exceptions to the rule where you can have global developmental delays mm. and some supporting documentation that will allow you to access early funding with the NDIS. So if you are a new parent and you are thinking, oh no, I can't access the scheme, you can just please go and talk to your medical team and get those reports. Even your preschool um, Mm. teachers and, and things like that can absolutely write supporting documentation. So it's not a no. Which can then at a later stage be transferred to a diagnosis of autism should that come up. Correct. So Because Oliver was your first experience with the diagnostic pathway, can you just explain what you went through, what he went through in terms of assessments, meetings, examinations, reports, how you were given the information, and what degree of hand-holding happened from that point on? Mm. My experience, I would hope it would have improved for other parents now. So as I mentioned, we were waiting for a good 18 plus months um, before we got into the public hospital system. We were required to be in a room uh, that was about three metres by four metres with four clinicians and they asked Oliver to perform consistent multiple tests, identifying colours, trying to match shapes, They wanted him to walk up and down three or four stairs unassisted. They were asking him, even though he's still to this day completely non-speaking, non-verbal, they would hold up cards and ask him to 
read out the card name and I'm saying he doesn't speak. Yeah, it's a it's a common frustration for parents. It um, really is. But it's hard to uh, explain the concept of standardised testing. It is. So standardised test means that you have to do the test the same way every single time, every single patient. You cannot do any different because otherwise yes. you can't interpret it. So there are some things that are, as you said, completely absurd for someone who's nonverbal, <laughs> completely absurd for someone who's of a particular age compared to another. And, and all of this, it makes the process even more stressful. It does. And so because he was our first and he was in a in an unfamiliar environment with four strange people. And my husband and I were in the room, but he just, he was so out of sorts. He Mm. didn't want to be there. He didn't know who these people were. They were making him try to engage in these activities that he had zero interest in. And at the end of it, we um, were sat down. The, The four of them went out and had a little conversation and left us in the room. And then they came and sat down and said, here's a piece of paper. We believe that your son is on the autism spectrum. Here are some um, people in the local area that we think that you should call. And good luck. See you later. That was it. That was it. And I sat in that room after those hours had gone by, watching my little boy clearly struggle, clearly not want to be there. I was heavily pregnant. We had Joshua also in the pram. And when they finally gave me that piece of paper, I shut down, absolutely shut down. I'd never wanted to escape a room as fast as I did that day because I felt, even though I didn't understand the process, I felt that the process was a non-justice to Oliver's capabilities. And did you know what autism was? Was this all completely new to you? I had an auntie who had worked in the disability space for 20 years. So she had been feeding my husband. (laughs) Drip feeding. Drip feeding my husband some information. My husband is, he's a realist. So he says, I want to rip the Band-Aid off. I want to know the information and I want to prepare myself. And if this is our path... How can we best plan for that? That's who my husband is. At, my, at that time, emotional, three babies, and I was like, give him some space. Mm. He's only two. He's only three. Let him have Protective some. as well. Yes. Yeah. Let him have some space to find and, and learn things in his own time. Yes, I acknowledge that we need to have maybe his hearing tested or there are certain things that I'm willing to do, but I wasn't ready to hear that diagnosis. And so when I did in that room, I shut down and I just wanted to get out there, get get out of there. And what we both went through for the next probably at least two weeks was a process of emotion. It was anger. How dare they? They don't know him. How how could they clinically assess him in such a short period of time? They don't see him eating this and drawing pictures and playing with this. And and they don't see that. And so there was anger. Uh, And then there was um, guilt, massive guilt. So you're, you're progressing through the stages of grief. Grief. Absolutely. 
Because so, it, did you feel from an emotional point of view that you had lost something? I wasn't. My little boy didn't change. From that room to the car ride home to when we got home, that little boy didn't change. He's still the beautiful little boy that he is and, and is to this very day. What changed was our fear as parents knowing that his journey in this world is now going to be insanely difficult. So you grieved over his future? Over his future. We grieved on, will he make friends? Will he ever speak? Will he talk back to me and we have a fight? Will he try and sneak out of the house? Will he ever have a girlfriend or a boyfriend? Will he go to the school formal, get married one day, give us grandkids? It's all of these things. Will he ever sleep over with friends and play on a soccer team? All of those things that when we were planning our parental journey and what we had envisaged for our family life was now all of a sudden completely different. And what so many parents take for granted. Yes, absolutely. And it is a process and we got through that within a, a short period of time. And for anybody who is feeling like that right now listening to this, it's okay to feel this way. It's absolutely okay to be in that moment and feel that way. If it starts to get a little bit too long, please go and seek some uh, assistance from your GP uh, because there are people out there that can help you go through that process if you're feeling really overwhelmed by it. Did you and your husband, Stephen, have different pathways through that process? Yeah, look, as, as mama bear, I think I am able to show my emotions much easier. I, I can cry, I can get frustrated, and I'm a Maltese woman <laughs> by heritage, uh, so a little bit passionate and I can, you know, I can really vocalise that I'm, I'm unhappy. Stephen is much more reserved and he is m- uh, more of an introvert. So he supported me and this is the beauty of our marriage. We've been together 12 years, but this is the beauty of, of us is that when I'm weak, he's strong. And when he's weak, I'm strong for him. And so he supported me through that. And when it was his turn, it was when he cried and oh my gosh, when he cried, it just, it broke my heart. And then when he got that, that out, he was able to say, okay, where are we going to go from here? How can we support this beautiful little boy? And that's where the research really started very quickly. In, in hindsight, with Joshua, with, with our second, from the moment Joshua was born literally in the hospital, we now know he was autistic. You could see from, with the benefit of hindsight or because of your experience? With the benefit of hindsight. Mm-hmm. We didn't know at the time because they were 11 months apart. But Joshua couldn't handle the noise of the beeping of the hospital, the other babies crying. Um, he would cry and cry and cry, like, but we didn't understand 
that his poor little ears were struggling with all of the sensory input that he was taking in. Uh, He had food aversion from literally day one. And your youngest, Tyler, what were the signs that he was also on the spectrum? So Tyler was a little bit um, different. It took me till he was about two and a half years of age because he was hitting his developmental milestones. He was pointing. He started to say mama and dada. He was eating a, a really nice range of foods. Um, he was playing with toys in the appropriate manner of which they were intended to be played with. And then one day I was changing his nappy and he started flapping his arms. And I looked at him and I went, I know what happy flappy is, the happy flappy arms. So to this day, all three boys have been diagnosed with autism level three. They also have severe intellectual disabilities. My older two have Pika, which is the consumption of inedible objects. So Joshua will eat anything he can get his hands on, even including razor blades. If my razor is not put away and locked away, I've caught him doing that once. But Joshi also has severe AFRID, which is Avoidance Food Restrictive Intake Disorder. So Joshua literally consumes four foods. Yeah, this They're is all a, white. This is a significantly greater degree than just a fussy feeder. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So Joshua eats four foods. Hot chips, but only from Red Rooster. Saladas. Crunchy white bread rolls, but only from Baker's Delight. And he will eat a pastizzi, which is a Maltese pastry with ricotta baked inside. At least he knows his heritage. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So, so, the that, so that, there's a few things I want to unpack before we get into the, the, Josh, the yes. food. Okay. You mentioned different levels of autism. Yes. So can you talk through what the three levels are mm-hmm. and why your boys are designated as level three? Sure. So level one is somebody who requires support but they have different um, strengths that they are able to potentially communicate verbally. They have uh, better social connections and not to say that their relationships are without challenge, but they're able to connect. and, And so I've got volunteers on my team who maintain healthy relationships, have children, uh, can drive vehicles, hold down a a full-time job. And then when they're having an autistic moment or autistic burnout, their autism shows in a really different way, which they need time to to Mm. settle down. It's what used to be commonly referred to as Asperger's Asperger's syndrome. Correct. We've moved away from the eponymous names. But as you said, there are plenty of people in the community who do not have a diagnosis, who probably would fit the that cr- criteria. Absolutely. We all know them. Yes. But as you said, most of them, even without support, lead completely full, happy, healthy lives. Yes. Level two is one step up though. It is. And it could be that you've got comorbidities that you might have an additional um, diagnosis of ADHD or Down syndrome, could be Tourette's. Autism level two is requiring that next level of support. They may have some verbal skills They still need that additional support of therapies and interventions, speech pathology, occupational therapy, and additional 
um, therapies. And it's a really interesting topic here. I, I don't want to dwell on, but this concept of degree of support required, yes. it, it's so ambiguous. It's yes, so gray. It is. And so there's a lot of talk. And recently in the media, it, there was a little bit of coverage over the potential overdiagnosis of level two mm-hmm. uh, for kids who are actually really level one. And then comes the question that I get almost every day, can you reassess a child two years after intervention and, and drop them down from three to one? one? What's your take on that? Look, there are improvements, absolutely. And especially if you're, you've got interventions, I can tell you within my three boys, Oliver and Joshua are a level three because they are still in nappies. They are completely nonverbal. And how old are the boys now? So Oliver is 10, Joshy is nine, and Tyler will be eight in about three weeks' time. Oliver's capacity is probably still sitting at an 18-month-old. He's got one sign, which is more, and he uses that for everything. Mm. Um, Joshua's ability is is slightly different. He's interested in reading and Proloquo to Go, which is an app for those who do, a communication yep. app, an ASE. And Tyler, who has the same diagnoses, is starting to become verbal. He's starting to look at connection with peers and playing alongside his peers. He may not be interacting with his peers, but he's already starting to move away. And if he was to continue with the therapies that we're, we're currently provided, maybe he might be able to, to move down to a level two. But right now, I have three boys pretty much with the same diagnoses. And, and, and are that, they just different personalities? Yes. But, well, yes. Th- this is what's really, I find very fascinating. The levels of autism, it's essentially a measure of functional capacity. capacity. Correct. And it sounds like which is a very common finding, that your boys go in increasing order of ability. Yes. Now, is that luck of the draw? Or, and this is a somewhat unprovable concept, Mm. that you could argue that Oliver started getting therapy age two, three. Mm -hmm. Joshua got therapy from the age of one. Mm -hmm via osmosis because of what Oliver was getting and Tyler got it from birth. So a lot of families that I look after will say, I've got two autistic children, for example, my second has far better functioning, or is it because they've actually been getting intervention through the parents upskilling for much longer? Look, it's it's a really valid question. And look, the validity of that, I don't don't know either, but we absolutely had therapists in our house four days a week and the kids would play alongside the therapist. So you're right, they did get inadvertently interventions without technically having interventions. You've mentioned a few times now interventions. Yes. I cannot stress, there is a completely new language that parents are forced to learn when they are given that diagnosis. And I can imagine because I have done that. I used to work in an autism assessment clinic publicly at Monash Children's Hospital. And I remember distinctly sitting in that room, giving that diagnosis. Thankfully, we have come a long way since your experience, but it is always heart-wrenching to give that diagnosis, even when parents know it's coming. And even if it's not their first time in that room, Mm -hmm. their first child, it's still 
difficult. And if it is a first time as it was for you with Ollie, you're told, A, here's a diagnosis and whether or not you knew it was coming, it still hits like a truck. Absolutely. Then there are all these words that are used, which you don't use if no. you're not in this space. Correct. You're, you're hearing things like child psychology, ABA therapy, occupational therapy, speech pathology, you know, social skills training, all of these terms, Arford, as you mentioned, that no one talks about, no one hears about. It's a completely new landscape. It's literally a maze. Yes. And you have to navigate it, as you said, by yourself. Correct. So my question to you is, what are the interventions? What are the therapeutic supports that are available for children on the spectrum? And what have you utilized and continue to utilize? Okay. The two primary ones are speech pathology and occupational therapy. So speech pathologists will absolutely start working on language and communication. So even if your child has some words or the ability to to speak, it's a really important intervention for social peer communications and different understandings of uh, written and, and spoken language. So speech pathology is really critical. Occupational therapy focuses on your fine and gross motor skills. So my boys, for instance, were able to jump on a trampoline and ride a scooter, but to this day, can't hold a pencil, still won't use cutlery. I can't get a toothbrush in their mouth for sensory reasons. And so we still work day in and day out on fine motor skills because they need these things in life. They need to be able to brush their teeth and eventually make a sandwich. So they're the two primary ones. Some of the ones that we found when we moved to the Gold Coast that were so amazing, and um, I don't want to give it all away, but come to the Gold Coast because it's beautiful. (laughs) Um, So we do things such as trampoline therapy. Now, trampoline therapy has been probably – the best therapy that our boys have done hands down. Emotional regulation, weight management, cognitive function, relationships with their coaches. We heard our very first words on a trampoline. Mum, like watch me, you know, like, but it was just. So we're not talking about jumping in the garden. We're talking about a far more. um, It's a sophisticated. Correct. Yes. A sophisticated therapy that's typically run by an OT or an exercise physiologist and overseen by uh, trampoline coaches who Mm. have had disability uh, training. training. And so it's a a multidisciplinary team and the things that we have seen our boys do is just incredible. And Ollie, Ollie, my little Ollie, he works like a machine. He works so hard. (laughs) He's just, he's so beautiful to watch. He really is. So trampoline therapy has had huge benefits for our kids. Uh, Therapy and dance. So certain dance programs. You can do, uh, I'm going to say this wrong, equine therapy. Equine, yeah. Equine. Thank you very much. Yes, with horses. We do sailing. Mm. There's sailability. So there's lots of different things. There's music therapy, which can be really wonderful for, for a lot of people hydrotherapy. So for people who have different mobility issues, as well as their autism diagnoses, getting in that pool and working with a hydrotherapist can have huge benefits. So 
I think one of the wonderful things that the NDIS has done in recent times is they have expanded the therapies and they've been listening to the participants, mm. which is really wonderful. About what they will rebate. About what they'll they'll now consider a therapy. And so whilst the NDIS is currently under a microscope mm. and they're revising, especially with autism level ones, um, their validity on the scheme and things like that. And there's lots of concerns around how the autism community will be affected by the NDIS changes. There are lots of supports that that we can now access, which is incredible because 10 years ago, you couldn't access all of those therapies. It was strictly allied health. Mm. So your speech and OTs, and maybe a, f- a physiotherapist. I sometimes, at the very early part of this journey for some parents, when I try to explain to them what OT is for, what speech is for, what psychology is for, and this is very, very superficial Psychology, level. yes, it's another one. I, I try to explain that ultimately autism is best conceptualised as a disorder of communication. Mm-hmm. And communication happens not just verbally. You've got the way you communicate with other people, which is verbal and nonverbal. Mm-hmm. There's also the way you communicate with yourself. Yes. It's the way you think, it's the way you process, it's the way you interpret. And then there's also a, a communication that happens with inanimate objects. And mm-hmm. that's where I try to draw in the concept of sensory seeking behavior, uh, issues with sound, issues with textures, tags on clothing, kids who won't wear socks, whatever it may be. And, and that tends to help parents understand how they need to navigate this maze. Yes. Have you found that your boys have all had relatively similar pathways or is it like a completely different kettle of fish for every boy? <laughs> Look, they're unique. So I've got two younger sisters and we're the f- same parents, but we're all very unique. And as are my boys, you know, most siblings. Do they have similar traits? Absolutely. But their autism is is certainly very individualised. And manifests so, in different ways. Absolutely it does. So... Um, Tyler, my youngest, his communication, his cognitive function, his understanding is far more superior. So he's now starting to understand if an unkind word is being spoken and we get big emotions and he doesn't know at the moment how to process those emotions. So that then leads to a meltdown, which could be an hour, hour and a half of him really in a in such a state and it's it's so horrible to experience as a parent watching your child in that state knowing that he, i can see his eyes and he's saying mummy i'm i'm still here but i can't stop this i've got to go through this emotional and physical process and so sometimes when he's in a in the heightened state of a meltdown I can stay with him and I let him know, baby, mummy is here. I'm not leaving your side. I know you don't want me here, but I'm just going to stay over in this corner because when you're ready, mummy's here. So that he feels safe. So he feels safe. Mm. Sometimes he will let me come in and cuddle him and touch him because he wants that pressure and he wants that comfort. But each meltdown is very different. 
And that's simply because he has an understanding that the other boys don't. So for Joshi and Oliver, they wouldn't understand when we're in public that literally every adult child are looking and staring at them. Some are making faces and joking. Some people are mimicking their their stimming sounds. And and let's not underestimate the impact this has from a social point of view. Absolutely. I mean, you've mentioned tantrums, meltdowns. People wouldn't look twice at a two-year-old having a tantrum at at the supermarket because that's normal toddler behaviour. But this is not the case with children on the spectrum. We don't use that word. We talk about meltdowns. What does a meltdown look like and how are they different for each of your boys? So a meltdown is a neurological event that happens and it is a very overwhelming situation for any autistic person who is going through that. And it, it, it's a, a sensory overload. I've heard people describe it sometimes like there's ACDC playing in their head at, at the most intense volumes and they simply cannot physically control the output. And that can be physical altercations, kicking, screaming, punching, throwing furniture. It's, it's crying, it's screaming. There are, everybody presents in their physical output in very, very different ways. For my boys, Tyler can be what I've just described. He can be very physical, very emotional, and it, it can take him over an hour to work through that that meltdown. And at the end of it, it's like a, a, a switch just flicks and he's like, okay, I'm done, I'm over. And you're left, I feel like it, it's it's an emotional hangover. We've just gone that you're through left with, not that him. I'm left with because he he can switch off. He moves on. He just goes, okay, I've processed it. It's been hell. I'm done. And he just goes off and he'll start playing like nothing's happened. He'll come and kiss me and he's done. And for me, I'm, I, I feel like I've just gone 10 rounds with Mike Tyson <sighs> and it's this emotional hangover and it's very challenging to to move past it. My other boys, if they have a meltdown, Oliver is, he will retreat. Oliver is the silent type. He will lie down on the floor in the middle of a Westfields and you can't move him. He's protesting. He's had enough. I don't want to deal with this anymore. If you don't get me out of here, it's really going to escalate. And my boys are really large because mm. my husband's six foot four and at 85 kilos and five foot two, you can't move him even if you wanted to. My my eight-year-old at 23 kilos, when he's in a meltdown, you need four grown adults just to make sure sometimes that he's safe and mm. he's not self-harming or he's going to harm someone else. And and sometimes for my other boys, if they've had a meltdown, they can't switch off like Tyler does and they're exhausted and they need to lie down and just decompress for a little while and it might be iPad time and they just relax. So at 10, they Oliver, whilst you can still see that he's a little 
boy from his baby face, give it two or three more years where he's much larger and he looks like a young man. And we'll get into this a little bit later, but this was my fear from three years old when he started getting diagnosed. And that's what made me research the relationships between law enforcement and the autistic community and why I founded Spectrum Support. And so we can, we can, we'll get into that a little bit later, but it's that fear of them being out in, in a public setting and people not understanding their complexities and judging them and calling the police or security or and they're just being themselves. Let's get, let's delve into it. Sure. No time like the present. What spectrum support? Because what you're describing is a challenge that every parent of an autistic child faces. Yes. There's feelings, I imagine, of embarrassment, of shame, no doubt guilt. And when it's done in a public forum, it's unbelievably challenging. Then comes the more complex side of things, as you said, when you may have issues with law enforcement, as you said, mm-hmm. or navigating certain services. What is Spectrum Support and how does it help? So Spectrum Support was founded in 2017. We are Australia's only trainer of police and first responders to understand the disabled and vulnerable in the field. So originally we started out with specifically autism training. And we partnered with New South Wales Police Force. We still have an existing partnership with them. And we created this bespoke training through a program called Guardian versus Warrior, which was ultimately awarded by the police commissioner at the time, which was very humbling. But quite simply, I trained police officers to understand who autistic people are in the field how to identify those behaviours, what to to do, how to approach them and how to de-escalate them so there is a safe outcome for everybody involved. And it's really for them, most autistic traits can be perceived to be insubordination. It could be perceived as drug or alcohol Mm. intake Mm. or use. If a police officer was coming up to you and there was fight or flight and they start to run, or if you've got your badge on and you've got a gun in your holster and it's shiny and someone's attracted to the shiny. Or or they want to touch it. They want to touch it and they invade your personal space. Police officers have to be trained in these behaviours to understand so they react appropriately not to cause harm, trauma or, or fatalities, which have sadly occurred in our Australian landscape more times than I would like. Mm. So that was all from being a mum and understanding very quickly who my children were and who they were going to be as grown adults and that fear. And it didn't take me long. You, you don't have to type in Google many words to, to get a huge list of terrible interactions that have happened on the Australian landscape. So that's what Spectrum Support is. I've now been doing that for close to nine years. We've expanded uh, to allied health workers, to first responders. So we now train paramedics as well. 
Uh, firefighters is something that I would definitely like to get in, into a little bit later down the track. But yes, we also train allied health workers now. I'm, the, I'm, I'm blown away by the work that you do, firstly. Thank the you. The second thing I'm just trying to understand, because I can't make sense of it in my head. Sure. How do you have the time? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't This is more I than a full-time sleep. job, what you do with your boys. I know. I imagine there's very little socialising <laughs> We don't. Happens. We don't have a social life, sadly. Yeah. So when, and this is one of the things as a parent, um, it doesn't matter what type of special needs parent you are, you'll find out pretty quickly within your friends and family circle who will be there for you and who won't. And it's a daunting hurt. You you just, you, you hurt your heart aches and it breaks and it's very lonely and it's very, very isolating. And I think with Stephen and I, we're very good at communicating and that's what keeps our relationship in this really beautiful balance. Um, Sadly, the divorce rates are sitting at about 86%. That's extraordinarily high. 86% if you have one child with special needs. So the pressures then, if you were a single parent, I can't, I can't fathom that. I, I'm very spoiled. I'm very lucky that I have a, a, a partner that I can share the load with. But when you do have a child that, that has special needs, you do very quickly find out who will be there for you in real life. Mm. I'm talking in real life times. Picking up the phone, how are you today? Can I bring you a lasagna over for dinner? Are you okay? You may not understand. What do the kids eat and what don't they eat? Yeah. That level of support. Sure. Look, sometimes it's just, hey, girl, are you okay? Sometimes it's just a phone call. Sometimes it's, you know, I haven't done the laundry in two weeks and I can't find a pair of pajamas. You know, can you come and just do a laundry load and just, there are different ways of support. And it's not necessarily that I expect you to understand my children's complexities and what makes them tick. But we need the support too as parents sometimes because it's selfless. I will do anything for my babies. My husband is the same. Joshua doesn't sleep at night. So Joshua's still a newborn. Nine and a half years, he's still a newborn. So I've learned that when we put our head down, I might get two hours sleep and then he's up and he's got a soiled nappy. We have to change him. Then we try and get him back to sleep and then he'll want to change this beds. Is dealing with an adult-sized human. We're not talking about four kilos. Yeah, that's right. Joshua's about 65 kilos so it's at a, nine. it's a physical as well as emotional toll it's taking on you and Stephen. Yeah, yeah. But again, I, I love my boys and I'm not embarrassed by my boys. I think my boys are beautiful. They've, they've got a very different journey to the one that I, I had envisaged for them. But now my job is to make sure that my legacy when Stephen and I pass on is that they're supported for the rest of their lives. Is that That's what motivates you? Yes. Thinking about what happens when you and Stephen are no longer Absolutely. Able? Absolutely. And I'm not going to cry. <laughs> I am not going to cry today. It tends to but, happen on this podcast uh, <laughs> with me as well quite regularly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but 
yeah, that's that's what keeps me awake at night, apart from Joshua. <laughs> Let's go back to the everyday challenges. Yes. Sometimes for people who don't have neurodivergent children, it's almost it's difficult to, to really get your head around the challenge of, you know, nappies when you're 10 or a, a tantrum over something seemingly insignificant in public. But every parent goes through challenges when it comes to food yes. and their children at various times, various different challenges. Talk us through this issue that you face multiple times every day of the week. Mm. So I don't cook one meal ever, ever. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner are four different meals. Um, and takeaway is never an option. Oh, uh, no, takeaway sadly is an option. No, but takeaway is For my husband and I. Yes. But, because, But, but yes. the kids have got very specific things that they eat. Correct. The way they, they're prepared, the way they're presented on the plate. And they're not being fussy. This is, they, they aren't able to. Correct. So, yeah, so, so sorry. Let me, let me clarify. Yes. Stephen and I, by the time we get the kids to sleep, Sometimes we're just so exhausted at eight o'clock that we just don't have the energy or the stamina to want to stand there and cook a meal. So we started a while back ordering takeaway and it was so detrimental. We've, we both gained weight. We were both really unhappy. And then that, that terrible cycle started. And so we've started to now finally put ourselves first. But one thing that we don't do anymore is we don't harbor guilt because I allowed myself to be guilty for so many years, for so many reasons. Now, if we ordered in takeaway on a Tuesday night, I'm not beating myself up Wednesday morning. I'm not going to because it's what I had to do to get through the day and still be a functioning mum and human being the next day. Because the next day I still have to be happy and go lucky and, and make my boy's day beautiful. So takeaway, yes, yes. But for my boys, even if I want to go and visit a relative or um, if we want to go away, I have to figure out how I'm going to pack an international suitcase plus of their specific foods. The pastizzi has to come wherever we go. And you can't get pastitsi anywhere. Like I have a guy, a Maltese guy on the Gold Coast who makes it for me because <laughs> you just can't get it anywhere. It's not like Sydney and, and Melbourne. But food for Joshua, more so than my other boys. My other boys will eat a banana. That's their only fruit. We're working again on watermelon. They used to eat watermelon back in the day. But those two will eat a fruit they will eat some chicken snitchel and I can get a ham and cheese toasty into those two. So for me, <laughs> that's a massive win and we continue to work on their food intake. But Joshy, so he is diagnosed with severe AFRID, so Avoidance Food Restrictive Intake Disorder. Joshua has been in hospital for starvation. I can't even count how many times. So his relationship with food is so disconnected that he doesn't understand that he's so hungry 
and it's making him emotional and he can't sleep and all of and these that things. internal communication. And yeah. if he ate something and put it in his body, no matter what it was, he would feel better. He doesn't understand the correlation between food intake and what it does for feeding the body. And it's not just the issue of the battle that you have to face. There's the flow, potential flow-on effects like, as you said, starvation. There's refeeding syndrome when they do eat. There's constipation, which is almost inevitable. Or diarrhea, which diarrhea, Joshy has, yes. Yeah, all of lot. these problems, nutrient deficiency, iron deficiency, vitamin D deficiency, which Correct. then have flow-on effects in terms of anemia, bone health, etc. There are long far-reaching yes. consequences that you've got to manage. Yes, there are. And so for Joshua, we've tried to have occupational therapists work with him. We've spoken to every dietitian, every nutritionalist, and with him, we're still not being able to find the supports that he needs. And the last three weeks, he went into, I'm only eating saladas. Literally, that's all he ate was three boxes of saladas a day. He didn't eat his four safe foods. One thing that I did with my kids from the outset was syringe anything. So uh, Nurofen, antibiotics, if they ever had to have anything, even to this day, it's still through a syringe. So I provide my boys a multivitamin every single day that I import from the United States that was approved by our gastroenterologist because it had all of the right vitamins for his their growing needs and it goes up to 12 years old. And so they have a multivitamin every day. They also have an iron supplement every day. And Joshua is still on a, a formula. So he's on the A2 formula. We were on stage four for a while because that's four years and older. But now they've got a new one, which is four to 12 years of age. And, and he's so, nine. And he's nine. And so that, so that really works for him. The nutritionalists have tried Petty Sure. They've tried all these different things. But he looks at it. He smells he can, it. He, he knows, he knows yeah. instantly. He's, he should be a detective when he grows up. <laughs> I swear he's just got this innate ability to sort of just look at it and go, that's not it. <laughs> now, that's, this is interesting. I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go down this pathway, but you've, you've, I've opened you've the forced door. me. Okay. <laughs> you just mentioned, you just said he could be the world's greatest detective. Yes. Right? I'm going to extrapolate from that, that there are people with autism who've got the most exceptional skills. And I'm not talking about the exceedingly rare savant autistic population, which is when people think of that, they think of Rain Man. I'm talking about people like your son mm -hmm. who is bloody good at detecting stuff. Yes. Okay. They see things that most of us don't even register. Yes. In some way, he could potentially be an enormous asset mm -hmm. to society, which means he could work, which has, you know, in terms of the grieving process that you discussed, there are enormous benefits. Mm. So earlier this year, we had M. Rashiano on yes. this podcast, okay. an episode you've heard. She said that she believes society should do more to change society than the child with autism. She said, let's not make these kids act normal. Let's make society change because society would be way better off if it was more accepting and inviting of children and adults on the spectrum. You are devoting so much of your life now 
to therapy to improve their functioning. Mm -hmm. I want to know how that conversation sits with you and what your thoughts are. My children are undertaking therapy, so they don't eat feces and they don't consume razor blades and they don't run across a highway because they have no understanding of safety. They have no fear. Oliver will walk up to a stranger because they've got an iPhone, a grown man, and sit on his lap. My boys are in therapy for their safety. We provide them everything that that we can to support them to learn how to go to the toilet because my boys are still in nappies. We want them to be able to brush their teeth and ultimately maybe make a sandwich and put some chicken nuggets in the oven without burning themselves. That is where they are. It doesn't mean that we're not pushing them to better themselves every day. We do loads of things that, that expand their capabilities every single day. Tyler's trajectory is is quite different and we absolutely move him into ways that strengthen his abilities. I think what we have to understand is globally autism is 1.9% of the population. Yeah? So we have a huge neurodivergent population without a doubt. We have approximately 400,000 neurodivergent people in or autistic people in Australia. And we are seeing accommodations, we are seeing new programs, we're seeing inclusivity programs in the workforce, in school settings, even in preschool settings. Are we moving towards uh, a different level of acceptance and inclusion? I think we are. Do we have a long way to go? Absolutely. But to ask of the entire population to change for my children, I, I, I don't think that that's a realistic scenario. But my job as a parent is to ensure that I upskill my children to the best of their ability and then to make sure that my legacy, because I know who my children are, is that for me, my biggest fear is that they'll end up in some group home and I don't want that for my children. So I'm working for my children's future beyond mine and my husband's lifetime. That's what I'm, that's, that's my journey, my personal journey. So look, we are seeing absolutely massive change in society. Absolutely we are. I don't think there is a clear answer. And because the spectrum is so large, what suits one may not necessarily suit another. But I really appreciate you sharing your, your thoughts and experiences on it. My last question, you, you talk so much about you being the teacher. You're teaching your children. You're teaching professionals, first responders through this, through your work, through spectrum support. You're educating and teaching. As the expert in the room, what have you learnt through this process? I've learned lots of things. I've learned that life can lead you down a very different path and it can be as equally beautiful as the one that you thought you were going to have. I've learned that my children 
through their their pathways have taught me how to be a better person and a more patient person and a more giving person. They've taught me how to problem solve in ways that I never thought that I would have to in order to help them problem solve. Mm. (laughs) I've learned that the greater society don't perceive my beautiful boys the way that I see them. And that is a very, very difficult pill to swallow when you see people ridiculing your beautiful boys and your beautiful children in public. I've seen the support that we get from the government through the NDIS and through therapeutic interventions. And I couldn't support my children's development without that additional funding and that additional support. I've seen my relationship with my husband grow stronger every single day because we are a united front in supporting our family and supporting our kids through whatever they need. I've seen police officers cry in my arms because they've got autistic children and they were fearful to let their own even come into their house because they were fearful of how that would that interaction would end. I've learned that friendships and family will come and go, but you will find your tribe. And I've learned that social media can be toxic, <laughs> but when you find a beautiful lot of people, that that can work too. And I think finally... I've got now um, some support workers that come into our home and bring in interventions that I would never have thought of and the kids listen to them and I learn from that relationship. And they have now afforded us, my husband and I, the ability to have a date night and to even have a, a sleepover once in a blue moon at a hotel, and that allows my husband and I for for connection. So I'm sorry that answer was so long-winded, but there are so many beautiful things about my life and about my, my family, and it's the outside world. If they could just see what we see inside our house, maybe they would look at autism and our children with a different pair of eyes and some empathy and have that understanding. Well, you have absolutely nothing to apologize for. (laughs) Kat Piraboom, entrepreneur, world-leading disability and vulnerable persons advocate and founder of Spectrum Support. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. To learn more, please check out the links in the show notes and to enjoy more parenting stories like this one, please like, follow, subscribe and share Dr. Golly and the experts wherever you listen. And for any information on my sleep programs or new book, head to drgolly.com. And just before you go, I have a small favour to ask. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you could rate and review the show so that more people can find us and hear more incredible stories just like cats. <laughs>